the young Mr. Benjamin Murphy is away this evening, so once again, I just asked him for the gavel. The gavel is way the young Mr. Benjamin Murphy, along with the membership cards and all of them. Shay, we're charming way to the music and everything, so we'll have me for the evening. That's probably not.
So what about the investigatory powers act? Anybody in loads and loads of government organizations can all just go, I'll have your search history for the past year. And every website you've accessed, and every other connection you've made. That's a breach of privacy. Mm, Theresa has had her microscope back in midway, looking into our private lives. Chris Martin. I would like to commend the SNP and the Dems for being the only real opposition to the Investigatory Powers Act, where in fact, uh, Mr. Corbyn, I believe, uh, them Abbott have been themselves under investigation uh, <laughs> in the past, and yet waived it through with no challenge whatsoever. First of all, the Lib Dems have received it anywhere. Any response to that? I'd just like to say it's a wee bit terrifying that they've managed to get this bill through Parliament and it's not all with frankly no opposite. I mean, obviously the Lib Dems are a very poor, powerful force, but like. Um, both no mobilisation of people, no public opposition, well, all the public opposition, so I just think that's what you know, it's very much become the MO of the Tories to try and sneak things through while we're busy with other things and hope we don't notice. We. <laughs> we as in the general public. Any final private member business to conclude? Any final private member <laughs> Very well. I would like this house to condemn the NHS wholeheartedly for putting a baby in the sluice bin. In the what? Yeah. In the sluice bin. For those who may not have any final So if you ever go and work in a hospital ward, there's this place where like the feces, the urine gets thrown into a bin. And effectively what this trust did was put a 20 week, 20 week old embryo into the sluice bin to die. Um, I can't elaborate on that. Twenty weeks later, it went into a, it. Basically, was delivered from the mother prematurely, so obviously wasn't going to survive twenty weeks. Yeah, it wasn't an abortion. No, no, no. no, no this wasn't an abortion, non-abortion issue. This is they should have basically this. This was probably about that big. Now, typically, what would happen is the mother would hold it and it would die about 10, 15 minutes later. Uh, but what the, this hospital decided to do was put this embryo into a sluice bin. Harry Dan? I think now we need to get a categorical investigation for the trust care, particularly for the very young. I was also reading BBC this morning how they put a newborn child on its own um, for over the same story. Is, is that the same, same story? It's a 20 week form of fertilization. I, I was wondering that, but it's, it's, I've seen this story repeated over and over again for months now. It's quite happy that the, 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 the current oversight methods is just not working. So I'd like to see what kind of measures could be taken to improve oversight. Or get rid of the NHS. Final point on that. <laughs> on the NHS in general, perhaps. So we should pass that motion, though. We should. Do we do it? You did put forward a motion. I put forward a motion. Go on. <laughs> um, that we should, um, what was it, condemn the NHS for the embryos. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> should we go for a vote on that? Any, any uh, uh, additions to the. Can we amend it? Yes. Sorry. Like, do you have to condemn the whole NHS for every can Well, it's a systematic failure of the NHS. Is that so? Yes. Um, right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I trust you. Uh, <laughs> 
Well, there you go. In light of recent revelations regarding a 20-week-old embryo being put into a sluice bin, this house would condemn the NHS as a whole. All in favour say aye. Aye. Eight. All those opposed say nay. Nay. More than eight. All those abstained? Nay. Nah. friend, motion is not passed this evening. You can all go home. Um, again, I, I, I moved to minutes now, but I have, no, I have no flowing way to go into it. Does anyone have a method of distraction that I could use? What do you think? Would you like an outstanding member of the house to introduce you to the house? Yes, Would Sam, do you like it to be me or something else? Uh, you'll find <laughs> The house then welcomes the honorary member. The eighth ordinary meeting of the literature took place on the 17th of November and was attended by 47 members. Private members' business was heard from John Nicolina, who inquired into the House's thoughts on the fake news scandal in midweek. Kira Campbell praised the entre- uh, entrepreneurial teenagers for pumping out the Arunas report for their ingenuity and enterprising spunk. Meanwhile, Rachel Allen scolded any self-respecting students who failed to check their sources. Conan Neal then loosened the lid on his can of worms before asking, is Marine Le Pen going to romp to victory in the upcoming general election? <laughs> After some despairing cries of s'il vous plaît, non, <laughs> Jason Bonsing claimed it would be a disaster, but in a post-Trump, post-truth world, anything is possible. Ryan Neal claimed that the support for MLP is a response to a state that isn't working for the majority of its citizens. While Harry Adair asserted that the conditions which are formulated thus far made it very likely that we will see another electoral upset. To conclude, Hugh Dobbins stated that Le Pen is after the daughter of a Holocaust denier, and Killian Thornton reminded the House that we should have some perspective, as our Parliament features convicted terrorists. <laughs> the brave boy. In a final piece of business, Stefan Ivanisky raised the point of Frank Walter Steinmeier's likely imminent assumption of the role of German president. Having been a member of the political establishment for many years, Mr. Ivanisky asked if it was better for a Trump-esque iconoclast or a stuffy establishment type like Steinmeier. German native Jeremy Miller responded by saying that the current Minister for Foreign Affairs is not unqualified before reminding the House that the role of German President is a largely ceremonial one. At this point, the House convened to vote on the name of our new society, Gavel, generously donated by Mr. Connor Ardell. After much dispute over suggestions such as Keith, MC Hammer, Harambe, the Hammer of Justice, Dignity, Gavel McGavelface, the Humble Hammer was eventually named Mignor, the Hammer of Thunder God. President's questions were heard from Matthew Sullivan, who inquired as to Mr. Murphy's breakfast contents. President Murphy responded by saying he enjoyed a cranberry sausage roll. We're through the looking glass here, (laughs) people. Conan Neal and Rachel Ireland then cross-examined the president to discover that he does not in fact live in the castle, but a bagger man's bungalow is his castle. <laughs> Without further ado, President Murphy then asked the motion for the evening, this house of Bon Hiroshima, 1945. Opening
Wave the Props Heroes, Mr. Stefan Ivanitsky. He opened by reminding the House that this debate should be viewed from the point of 1945, with no revisionism or what-ifs to be tolerated. He claimed that the objective of every war is to disarm the opposition. However, Japan during World War II was in a state of total war, whereby everyone in the country was involved in the war effort in some capacity. The country was in no position to surrender, and after many years of trying, the US realized that there was no other way of successfully forcing surrender and ending the war. He claimed the bomb circumvented the need for a land invasion, which would have prolonged the war further, and that in the long run, the bomb served to protect more lives than it cost. Over the opposition was main speaker, Mr. Josh Harewood. He claimed right off the bat that it would be foolish for the US to resort to the bomb, as they had not yet exhausted all options. He refused the claim of the proposition that the bomb would save lives in the long run, and asserted that instead of using its bomb with no prior warning, the US should instead perform a public test of its nuclear arsenal in order to frighten the Japanese into surrender. He also claimed it would be naive to bomb when the Russians were about to intervene, which would act as a straw to break the Japanese country's back. Continuing with the proposition was main speaker Matoy Raw. He claimed flat out that if we didn't use the bomb on Hiroshima, it would result in 5 to 10 million people being killed, as opposed to 80,000. To support this, he claimed that if we didn't drop the bomb, the Japanese would never surrender until the absolute last moment, even after a land invasion. This would lead to an inevitable, enormous loss of life, both Japanese and Allied forces alike, with no end in sight. Additionally, Mr. Arar claimed that should the US invade, over 100 American prisoners of war would be immediately executed as a warning. He concluded that if the Japanese were unwilling to play fair, then neither were we, and that the ends most definitely justified the means. Speaking second of the opposition was Ms. Ellie Newton. She claimed that to launch the bomb when a Japanese surrender was imminent would be a foolish idea. The use of nuclear weapons should exclusively be called for in emergency situations, and this was not one of them. In response to the proposition's claims that all of Japan was contributing to the war effort, Ms. Newman asked that if that meant women and children being forced to manufacture bullets deserve to be killed for their actions. She concluded that dropping the bomb was an act of terrorism against a country which was already reeling. Closing the proposition's main speaker, Mr. Matthew Sullivan. He claimed that the 80,000 which would be killed by the bomb would, killed by the bomb, would be no comparison to the 800,000 Allied forces and millions of Japanese who would die in the ongoing war. If it's not love, then it's the bomb that will bring us together. Mr. Sullivan espoused this in claiming that it was either the bomb or a bloody naval war which would carry on for years. He concluded by saying that it was a hard choice, but one that we'd have to make for the benefit of mankind. Conclude with the opposition, and so the debate was Mr. Hugh Dobbin. One word, Stalin! Mr. Dobbin claimed that the Soviet leader was the sole reason why the proposition were arguing as such. The dropping of the bomb was nothing more than an attempt to show off America's power to the USSR a decision which would come back to bite the US during the Cuban Missile Crisis. He claimed that the Second World War wasn't going to rage on as the proposition would like to state, and that this was nothing more than the US wishing to demonstrate its power on the world stage to disastrous consequences. Questions were heard from Keira Campbell, Keira Campbell, Matthew Sullivan, Lily Becker, Jimmy Miller, and Colin O'Neill. An opinion vote based on House opinion was taken, which read, six eyes, 22 nays, and 10 abstentions. Meanwhile, a casting vote based on speech performance on the motion, this house will bomb Hiroshima in 1945 is taken, which read, one eye, 19 nays, and five abstentions. Now I take the minutes to read. Aye. Thank you. Right, so before we begin, do we have any President's questions? In absence of Mr. Murphy, we have myself. Anything you'd like to know? Yes. I would like to ask the Secretary what the President had for President. <laughs> 
we've discussed divulging President Murphy's private life. While he does inform me every morning of his significant correspondence, <laughs> right? I'm not allowed to discuss. No, come on. <laughs> In relation to the lack of transparency as to what the presence is, has a coup that had effectively happened and is Mr. Murphy sleeping with the fishies? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and once again, the private life, Mr. Murphy, <laughs> matter. Whether he sleeps and who he chooses to sleep with and the animal that he chooses to sleep with is his own business and we are not divulge it here. Great man. So has he taken lessons from uh, David Cameron on who to sleep with? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody must have done it. Any final questions? Yeah, Did the president shoot her own bed? Oh, 
classes you've taught before this minute, so then they'll be mentioning the game of Twitter next week. True, true. Because it hasn't Chris Brown, that's on you to, to edit those out skillfully. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all those abstaining on the motion, please say bleh. Please say who I am. I didn't think that actually passed, so Harambe will continue to mention now and forever. <laughs> Chilcott's legacy must keep the West out of the Middle East. I now call upon the leader of the proposition, Mr. Jonathan Finlay. Thank you, Mr. Secretary, for that humorous welcome. Um, I, I was slightly worried, not just because I can't find my clock on this. Uh, I was slightly worried that I would be somewhat constricted by the restrictive motion and the motion that changed from the term card, but then I noticed that I'm the only one on the panel that even has a collar level in the tie, so I think, I think this one's pretty much open and shut case. Um, today, the government, as Ben would have us call it, are going to make the case that Chilcott's legacy should keep the West out of the Middle East. I'm going to define the motion and summarise more or less, what the government is going to argue. I'm then going to point out we're not arguing for the avoidance of doubt and straw men from the opposition. And then I'm going to go through a few of the actual recommendations of the Chilcot report, because it probably should get into this somewhere. And uh, leave that open as to, as to why we think those specific recommendations should keep us out of the middle of the middle. We're defining the motion. And in the literary, it is important to boil these things down to this extent. <clears> that the Chilcot report, by which I mean the report of the Iraq inquiry, to give it its proper name, not uh, Sir John himself, should keep the West, by which I mean industrialised countries, not Fermat, out <laughs> of the Middle East, by which I mean the Middle East. Forever. By which, well, that's a, that's a philosophical question, but I think we can park for this week. Um, now, what we are, we're, not, we're not arguing that the West has no strategic interests in the Middle East. That would be absurd. We're so bound up in it that, at the very least, we're the prisoners of history. And we're not arguing against the principle of humanitarian intervention or interventions of any kind. The whole point is that, as Deputy Leader of the Opposition, or the Deputy Prime Minister will argue, before the Chief Whip of the Government says something, I'm not quite sure if I, if I know him, he probably doesn't know himself by this point, um, but it should be the United Nations Security Council that should take decisions such as this, or the United Nations General Assembly, or somebody that doesn't just represent the West. We are not making the argument that Western intervention, to use that slightly creepy term, in Iraq was a pure, unalloyed example of neocolonialism in the interest of rapacious corporate capitalism, although we're not denying that either. And we're not denying that Blair, Bush, et al. may actually have had good intentions. Our argument stands even if 
what Peter Hitchens refers to as the Blair creature, acted entirely in good faith. It could be that they were simply flushed with success after Kosovo and <coughs> Diana, and thought, thought they could take on the world. Indeed, this seems likely because there is something about the Middle East, and we'll get to this, that seems to give Western politicians something of a, I choose my words deliberately, Messiah complex. Paragraph 859 of the thrilling executive summary of Chilcott Report <laughs> reads as follows, and I took the bother to write this out because I could kick myself out of writing speech. In any undertaking of this kind, by which they mean long-term opposed occupation and reconstruction in a sovereign state, certain fundamental elements are of vital importance. The best possible appreciation of the theatre of operation, a hard-headed assessment of risks, objectives which are realistic, and the allocation of the resources necessary for the task. Now, considering that what we decided to throw into Iraq were land rovers that just about made it out of Northern Ireland. I think the point about the allocation of resources makes itself, but you'll notice that the other three require some level of detached, deliberative consideration and consultation. And you would think, to make decisions as important as this, some sort of group work, maybe a cabinet, for instance. Well, it is abundantly clear from Iraq inquiry report and from people such as Claire Short who have come out and talked about it afterwards, that there was no semblance of cabinet government in the time of Tony Blair. And this is not, I put it to you, simply a problem with Blair. This is a problem that will be common to any politician, any Western politician, who looks at the Middle East and sees an opportunity to make themselves the new Churchill. Whether it's Blair in Iraq, whether it's Cameron in Libya. And why do they have that fixation with the Middle East? What is it about the Middle East that gives them this messiah complex? Now, it's not just that it, the Middle East is a hothouse of revolution and political experimentation where dangerous ideas, contrary to the neoliberal status quo, may take hold. It's not just because it is the sphere of influence of our bosom body, body Saudi Arabia, and our ridiculous, I'm pretty sure, phony war with post-Soviet Russia. And it's not just because it is the region of Israel with which certain elements of Britain and the United States establishment have a tragic fixation. I stumbled upon earlier a photograph of some rather <laughs> glum-looking chaps, and the caption read, Stormant friends of Israel. And when you see the sort of people who are in Stormant Friends of Israel, you start to realize the sort of people that are leading the West and why maybe we keep intervening in other countries in the Middle East that aren't Israel. And it's not just guilt about our not necessarily malign but nevertheless unthinking colonial history in the region, which either calls the present instability by its presence or indeed by its abrupt. Absence. Something else. Something else. The Middle East. Messiah complex. What could it be? 
Thank you. Opposition, Mr. Jason Bunting. Good evening, everyone. Uh, good evening, Chairperson, fellow leaders, and esteemed opposition. Um, so, there are many reasons why I know that defending intervention in the Middle East is not exactly um, popular right now. Um, it's one of the few issues that in which I will not be invoking the name of that most fantastic woman who should be and rightly is the President of the United States right now. She won't come in with so much a But I know that the bloody legacy of Iraq, Afghanistan and Libya, not to mention longer conflicts like Vietnam, have created strong anti-interventionist sympathies and these sympathies have no uh, stronger voices than in PC level, that's not a fan panel universities. But I want to explain tonight how our continued role in the Middle East and a continued presence and a continued um, vigour in intervening is faithful and true to our values as a Western country, um, which values democracy, values peace and combats human rights abuses. Indeed, I seek to argue that tonight, if we do not intervene in the Middle East, not tonight but in general, uh, we are ending our commitment to such values and instead shying away from our role in the world. So let me be clear, um, like Johnny, uh, we should not intervene in the Middle East purely for financial and militaristic reasons for militarism's sake. We should not intervene in the Middle East purely for oil, and we should not inter uh, intervene in the Middle East to civilise the poor savages in a colonial attitude, because we all are from the north of this country and we know how that feels. So my argument this evening is not more over the argument to reinvade um, re Iraq. The only point that I will make in advance of these past interventions is that uh, our failures have been more in not planning for an efficient uh, structure and government after the fact. Okay. <laughs> um, rather than the morality of intervention itself. Uh, so that's my personal opinion. I don't want to say too much about that because it's not where the one we've done. But instead, tonight I want to articulate the argument that our country uh, should be confident and optimistic about intervening in the Middle East when we have a humanitarian agenda or when our values and the values of liberal democracy are threatened. So the impact of the Chilcot report, um, it's my conclusion that it shouldn't dilute our enthusiasm for democracy. Um, it should dilute our passion for making people who want to choose their own way to live and establish their own countries and governments for themselves um, be free to do so. So today in the Middle East, um, obviously the moment, yeah. Um, the, you, making the point eloquently for liberal democracy and the right of people to choose their own governments for themselves. If the sovereignty of a neighbouring state has not been violated, why is that not an example of, if not democracy, at least national sovereignty, that they have chosen a dictator who wants to persecute minorities? Yeah. Um, I get what you mean, but I feel like in a lot of these cases, um, you don't know what the choice of the people are. I understand there are some exceptions to that, but when you have a dictator in power, it's very hard to ascertain what the free and fair elections of a country would, would result in, because of course we won't have that happen. Um, so today in the Middle East, yes, we face a draconian enemy of, um, uh, of um, peace and justice, which operates in medieval fashion. And is utterly contemptible of every aspect of our way of life. So Daesh is an organisation which has zero compunction in throwing gays off buildings, in beheading journalists, and in burning women in cages. Women and girls are regularly sold into the sex trade or given to victorious ISIS fighters as prizes after battles. 
ISIS fighters engaged in massacres both in the territories they fight in and at home by radicalizing people in our own country to commit acts of atrocities. The real question is not should we or should we not intervene in the Middle East, it's how can we stand by when atrocities like this happen, war crimes are being committed, and we don't do anything about it. No, that's too easy. So, and, uh, another point I would like to make is that people always go on about it's some far from corner of the world. What should we care? They're not people like us. We'll let them sort their own problems out. This is not the attitude that a modern country should have. We should be saying that it doesn't matter whether these people just aren't our neighbours. It doesn't matter that they're just not like us. We should be going and saying charity may be natural, but that's not where it has to end. And we should be going after and fighting human rights abuses, not just in our own country, but wherever, wherever they take place. Um, and another point I'd like to make is that liberals and conservatives in equal measure always encourage us to argue for an international response to the greatest crises of our day. So they always say we should work with other countries to combat injustice, to combat tyranny. What is that? If we don't intervene in the Middle East, all that is is empty words. NATO and UN are there to protect, to protect people against tyranny and to defend our interests in the world. It's our sacred duty and our most awesome responsibility to come to the aid of people who need us most in the world. And although our thoughts and prayers are with those who died in Iraq, soldiers and their families, we cannot let that hinder or handicap us from going back in and doing what needs to be done to protect our interests. And so I'd like to take an old past this argument. So those, there are those who should argue that we shouldn't bomb, we shouldn't send troops, we should in fact do nothing. And they argue that we should more concentrate at home our domestic agenda and protecting the people that live here. But then who will defend the people who are, whose human rights are being abused in those countries who are victims of a regime which imposes more misfortune on them than we've seen in a generation? Who will stand up for the people of Syria as they are gassed by the leader and butchered by those people who want to be their leaders? In short, if not my way, and if not by whom we should do. Go for it. Um, well, the West is intervening in Syria, and what they're doing is actually arming the rebels who are doing this, as you said, to the civilians. Yeah. This is the point, they're not going in and like helping the civilians, they're literally arming the people <coughs> who are killing them, which is why Western intervention is not working in the country. I'm not saying that Western intervention is working right now, and I'm not saying the policies of the British government or the MOD. I'm saying that the concept of intervention is a good one, and that if it's carried out correctly, it works. Um, so, just to fire through a few arguments, so there are, um, one thing I'd also like to point out is that the, the sort of eras and battles in which we don't intervene haunt us forever. Look at Rwanda, look at the butchering of 800,000 Tutsis. It haunts America still because Bill Clinton did nothing about it. Hillary probably would have. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes, so it has to be said that non-intervention is not No. <laughs> so, there are many people who will say that these fights don't concern, don't concern us, don't get involved there. Just, uh, in other words, why should we care? But in a world where anything can be brought to our country, um, and the, so that means the problems of the Middle East, in short, are very much our problems. Um, so one final point I'll just end on, because I know I'm running short of time, is considering the debate about whether or not to intervene in the bombing of Syria, so whether or not to bomb Syria. Um, so voices from the right and the left understood the proportional and justifiable case for intervening to save lives, to shorten a brutal war, and put us on the path of defeating and destroying Daesh. And one of the most eloquent defences of intervention was by the shadow foreign secretary Hillary Benn, who said that in our party, we believe we have a responsibility to one another. We never have and we never should walk by on the other side of the road. And it is with these words that I urge you to do for me.
we thank Mr. Bunting in the debate about interventionism to mention Hillary as few times as possible in London struggle. We now look to Mr. Connor Neal speaking secondly for the proposition. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Um, Mr. Althoff, President, uh, comrades of the House, I want to be clear. This side of the House is not against interventionism. We believe strongly that there are times when intervention can supersede the independence of a sovereign state. We saw the humanitarian successes in France in 1914. We saw it all over Europe and the Pacific Theatre during the Second World War. Intervention overthrew fascists, tyrants, murderers, and paved the way for democracy and liberty. We saw it in Rwanda when the government imposed the subsequent genocide of nearly one million people in 100 days. The UN were too late for prop to properly intervene, but they did. And they did so with compassion and brought security for all in the region. We saw intervention in the Balkans before the turn of the millennium when a harrowing genocide was committed <coughs> against Muslims in Bosnia. The very thought of which still chills even the most cold-blooded of us when you think that it was only 17 years ago. Again, the West acted and acted bravely to bring peace and stability to the region. It is important that this House recognises the importance of these interventions and accepts that the West does have a key role to play on the world stage as protectors of freedom and liberty. However, with regard to the motion, the Chilcott report has been damning for George Bush and more locally Tony Blair. There are millions of reasons as an avenues that we could go down with relation to and if and when we should have went into Iraq. But the reality is that we did and that we failed. I will not argue for or against the intervention in 2003, but only that as, as, responsible, as we are a responsible group of states and nations, the West must look at their failings in the Arab states and realise that their presence is not wanted there anymore and is indeed held in deep contempt among the population. In fact, the opposite of what we wanted to achieve from the intervention actually happened. We have seen a complete collapse in law and order in the streets of Iraq, with religious fanatics butchering innocents and raping women and children. We have seen a theocratic caliphate rise from the power vacuum that was left after the deposition of Saddam Hussein. The first speaker referenced the deeds of ISIS. All of this came from our intervention. We caused this and we are responsible for that. More like flip coin. I mean, it's very easy with benefit of hindsight to go back and say that had we intervened differently or not at all, then we would there would not be the same or even greater evil. However, I don't think that takes into account what would have happened if the war dragged on for five, ten more years. Um, I accept your point, and as I said, my, my whole argument is basically ravelled in a post-war conflict, so like, we have to look at what we have done and how it didn't work, and that it won't work again if we go in, but I definitely accept the point now. Um, okay, uh, we, have seen, we have seen the worst humanitarian refugee crisis since the end of the Second World War as a result of our intervention. And we witnessed a scale of barbarism that hasn't been encountered since the genocides of Rwanda and Kosovo. A black flag that poses a genuine global threat to peace and freedom. The basis of my argument 
is based in pragmatism, in post-war knowledge and stark realisation of the grievous deeds that were done in the name of freedom and the West. Uh, I will reference a great thinker, Albert Einstein, when he said, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Uh, yes. I think you're contradicting yourself there, because you've already said by not intervening in certain conflicts in the past, we basically made mistakes and we should have done, and we then tried to intervene in Iraq and we've made a mistake. So it's not that we're doing the same thing again, we've actually done something completely different there and made a different mistake. And that's a contradiction to your own speech so far. Uh, well, I was, I was just on about irrelevant interventionism in terms of like Vietnam Wars, uh, Korean Wars, stuff like that, things that were done in the West with regard to that. Um, not like humanitarian genocides as such. Uh, again, uh, the first speaker spoke of uh, international cooperatism and, and uh, cooperation sorry, in terms of uh, we, we should be sort of all like, locked out and, and help each other. But I think we, we always forget that the French freedom us going into Iraq and we still undercut that. That is like international law breaking and we did it. So, like, we locked out to our neighbours and we didn't come under any consensus, but we still went in, which is illegal under international law. We've had the breakdown of Iraq, we've had the collapse of the now failed state of Libya, we've destroyed the country of Afghanistan, and now we're con con continuing to meddle in another sovereign state's affairs, Syria. When are we going to accept that Western intervention in the Middle East is absolutely insidious and toxic to the efforts of global peace? Saddam Hussein, Colonel Gaddafi, Bashar al-Assad, all tyrants, despots, murderers. But secular and accepting of the one thing that has historically prevented peace in the Middle East, religion. Dictators, yes, but stable and in control. What was once an Iraq of multiculturalism and relative freedom has been completely obliterated beyond all recognition. The Christian population has slid off a cliff from one and a half million people in 2003 to less than 200,000 people. The socialist country of Libya, where there were no fuel bills, free education, free healthcare, completely vanquished. Do not allow these want-to-be cultured demagogues to try and take some moral high ground on this issue. These will be the people who will tell us to go to war, but they themselves will not fight. They will tell you to take up arms against tyrants, but they themselves will never fire around, dare I say, kill anyone in the name of their political dogma. The failed foreign policy of Britain and the US since 2003 has claimed the lives of over 5,000 Western soldiers, maimed and wounded over 40,000, and has been directly responsible for nearly 600,000 civilian deaths in Iraq. Never before in the history of Western interventionism has the powers that be been so clueless and out of touch than when it comes to the Middle East. The Chilcot Report has shown us that we need to learn from our mistakes. Mistakes that have cost the lives of hundreds of thousands of people and mistakes that have plummeted the origins of civilization into complete chaos. We need to realize that the people of these countries do not want us. And that even when we try to do the right thing, we have the opposite effect because of this. In life it is said that we must all lay weight to both our hearts and our heads. In this case, we must favour the latter and pass through the motion. Thank you.
up on second speaker with the opposition, Mr. Jean McLennan. Mr. President, wherever you are, I'm honored. <laughs> um, interventionism, just so we have this clear, can be achieved by peaceful diplomacy or through military methods. The motion being put in the House tonight is an overreaction to the Iraq War. We have allies in the Middle East, many of whom require our assistance in their times of need, whether through that is through strategic bombings, which have helped help defeat Daesh, or through providing a diplomatic platform for peace talks. The opposition tonight have you believe that the motion tonight is only about the events that have happened in the Iraq war, and that they will be repeated. This motion is not just about our ground troops, but air strikes, and to ensure that other nations cannot achieve a nuclear weapon capacity. The passing of this motion is a signal to our enemies in the Middle East, and to those in other nations that the West is weak, cowardly, and too afraid to take part of another conflict. Yes, we've had some bad experiences in the past, Yet, in light of not being able to achieve a peaceful solution, what other solutions do we have? Russia is um, currently bombing Syria and, spread, um, and helping to prop up Assad. Um, and without Western, Western um, our ideals being um, spread, we're letting Assad get stronger and other um, terrorist groups. Yes? Um, does this not go back to what the first speaker said about the West having a messiah complex? Is intervention the same as requested assistance? Um, should we not draw a line between those two? Point. Um, for we wait to ignore the Middle East and keep on with it a few years ago, Iran may have had a nuclear arsenal. Whatever your opinions on our countries having nuclear weapons or not, having a Middle East superpower is not something that should be achieved in such an unstable environment. Now, I will be the one to try to defend the Iraq war, but the Chilcot report is not an attack on Western intervention as a whole. They, it is solely anti-Iraq. The findings of the report um, do not give a political mandate to never enter the Middle East again. And it's a report to provide government and people with the basis to learn from the consequences <coughs> and through what we can learn from the Iraq war. The key point to me to take from this war is to not enter a conflict without the means for an end or a commitment to a long-term strategy. Another important point to take from it is that future conflicts must be calculated, debated, and challenged with rigor. To quote the report, military action in Iraq may, might have been necessary at some point, but in March 2003 there was no imminent threat from Saddam Hussein. The strategy of containment could have been adapted and continued for some time, and the majority of the UN Council supported continuing UN inspections and monitoring. Now, if we dissect this paragraph closely, we will see that there was a very strong case for intervention, sorry, or for the West to be in the Middle East. For in itself, containment is a policy of what our ground troops and our strikes would be um, possible in the Middle East. Furthermore, UN, oh, never mind. This is not a statement that we should never go to war, but that then, in hindsight, it's not the right time to go to war, especially with the lack of planning. Now, the Ministry of Defence did have some horrible crimes, um, well, not crimes, but lack of planning, such as the threat of improvised explosive devices, which, um, saw, um, which could have been easily um, protected against through adequate medium-weight protected patrol vehicles, and this should not be tolerated. Um, a plan is something that we must have in the future, not a so-called pla so plan to do nothing. 
Now, let us think about our future, um, future conflicts. In many years' time, we might, not, we might not know what to predict in future circumstances. With the war in the Middle East and the very real potential of another war after Daesh, we should not be looking at the Iraq war as an excuse for our lack of support. Um, President-elect Donald Trump has already said that he has, may give Russia free reign in the Middle East, allowing QM, and we must, we must stand up for our Western ideals and to ensure that people are not killed for not supporting a dictator. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I don't think, particularly after the events of Iraq and seeing it repeated again in Libya, and also then in uh, Syria, it's is it fair to say that vast the majority of the population, even after the Arab Spring, are not receptive to Western liberal democracy as we see it, and as we've seen with Syria in particular, which is generally considered to be an authoritarian democracy of sorts, why then are we toppling something that's closer to us and enabling a theocratic regime? Are we not being too idealistic and leading instead of letting practicality determine when we should intervene? Yeah, well I, I do take the point that of the whole thing about question, um, question ideas of us spreading this, but um, there are other cases and that we, like for example, I'm not saying that we should attack Assad or anything, but Danish are people that are killing people, and um, that's not spreading our Western idea, that's just killing a threat that is a threat to us, not just a threat to the Middle East. Um, I, now, anxiety over past failures should not be an influence on our decision. Now, I understand and respect the fear of never going into the Middle East again. Yet we should replace this fear with actual action, not the promise of an action, no matter what. And um, by looking at the evidence and getting a better solution next time, we should not dwell on our mistakes, but learn from them and strive for a better solution in the future. Understand that intervention can be peaceful through diplomacy and providing a platform for peace talks or through deals to ensure peace. Therefore, I urge you to vote against the motion tonight. Good evening, ladies, gentlemen, members of the That's just rude. <laughs> But I'm glad we're wasting some time. So, if you have you started? <laughs> so, I, I have to apologise in advance for what most surely will be the worst speech of the night. Because let's be honest, I'm, I'm flying by the seat of my pants here. <laughs> Though I, I do in fact agree with the motion, you know, I'm somewhat struggling to, to put into words why. So we've heard many things from. from my uh, preceding speakers of the West Messiah complex with hurdle. The, the lasting legacy of pain that Western interventionism has caused in the Middle East. And we've had many other things from, from the opposition, I can't really remember, <laughs> because I was, to be honest, writing this. <laughs> <laughs> So, the West 
is in crisis. It truly is. 2016, the year that the West goes into free fall. We see it now. And as a consequence, this is the exact time at which we should definitely take the Chilcot uh, report as a jumping off point in ending our never-ending tirade of Western interventionism in the Middle East. Because if we don't, then we're in quite a bit of trouble. Because, yes indeed, as I believe the opposition has, has stated, that there are those out there who are threatening our values of liberalism and democracy. But they're at home. They are our UKIPs, our Trumps, our Front Nationals. And now we see how the lasting effect of interventionism has played on what is the home front. Now, I haven't much more written down. <laughs> I apologise. But the truth is that Western interventionism has not only caused chaos, it has not only left just complete disarray, has resulted in the disintegration of the Middle East, but has also resulted in a more hairline fractures lying across our own society. Even in the case of looking at the Chilcot uh, report itself, the very pinpoint of anger directed to it, directed to what was Britain's greatest post-war government, the Blair government. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we've seen them turn in such a magnificent government that we can't do this again. Um, if the world's the UK's greatest post-war government can't do it, then who the heck can? On that point. <laughs> <laughs> Except your point? Well, I mean, it is, it's again coming back to the situation where the West is reeling whenever it, it, it didn't go in, like with Rwanda. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very I'm concentrating on one example, so intervention and use this evening. And not once have I heard the first Gulf War or, or Kosovo, which unquestionably prevented civilian casualties from going in. So why should domestic concerns, which I will admit are on the minds of politicians across the Western world right now, but why should we let the internationalist agenda, which has defined Western policy and has ultimately, I think, significantly bolstered its influence and its domestic capabilities, why should we toss that aside simply because we're paranoid about a third inner threat? Because we face a more fundamental threat than we have ever seen before. We face the most destabilization in Europe in the entire duration of the EU. God bless it. <laughs> so I'm afraid we reach a point of no return where we must look back inwards and stop using the outside world as a distraction from our own problems. We must reflect on our values, we must protect our values, Absolutely. but we must protect them at home first before we can try and spread them out into the world. And that's about as much as I've got.
which is granted now concluding for the opposition on the solar debate is Dr. Craig Mellon. I think that the sort of the actual only real legacy of the Chilcot Inquiry is how long it took. Seven years is an absolute joke. Uh, and that, in reality, is the best point you're going to hear tonight if I say so myself. Uh, I don't think we've heard anything on proposition that would. Is, it trumps that point uh, and will make this uh, debate any greater. Uh, I think that one of the other <laughs> one of the other legacies of the uh, Chilcot Inquiry is that we should be adopting a feministic uh, foreign policy. I think they've worked really well for Sweden and I think we should uh, carry on doing that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm Danish, still! Inside <laughs> like one minute. Uh, in terms of the actual crux of this debate, uh, I think what we've sort of got to the point of, if I'm going to try and sum this debate up as best as I can, is what we're looking at is the one of the most disastrous interventions that we, the West, have made versus some of the disa most disastrous non-interventions that we haven't done in Rwanda and the Balkans. And I think what we've got to try and look at is does the Chilcot Inquiry say no intervention, or does it lay out a framework in which we should be going, actually, we need to tip A, B, C, D, E, F and G before we then intervene? And I think it is the latter rather than the non-intervention. Let's just compare and contrast a few of these uh, ideas. So, in reality, Iraq was a genocide, okay? Hundreds of thousands of people were dying there on a yearly basis at the hands of Saddam Hussein. It was a genocide just like it was in Rwanda. So we've got a genocide. That is a time when we should be intervened. And I don't think anybody in this room would ever disagree with that point. If you see a genocide, you want to go in and stop said genocide, yes? So there is always going to be that case for intervention. So we've got that in Iraq. Then basically we look at the whole idea of regime change. Now this is where we start to break down, okay? Where we're starting to compare and contrast. We have not successfully, as the West, been able to, perf to perform any idea of regime change in the Middle East to date. But yet we choose to go into these, uh, into these wars and go, we want regime change, but we can't. So that's the first bit of contradiction we've got from uh, what we did in Iraq to probably what we should be doing in the future. Let's go in with the idea, if we're not going to deal with the actual <coughs> regime in power there, we're just going to stop them committing said genocide. That's the second point. That doesn't mean don't go in, that just means go in with a different aim. The third point, and I think probably the most important problem with Iraq, was we had absolutely no exit strategy. We thought they would roll over, we thought we would go in as a big bad messiah uh, and change the world. That didn't happen, they fought as they would, as we would, and you've been left in the mess that we've got. Now, I partly blame this down to only having a five-year term of government, that effectively we can use wars as a political tool to get voted in. And that's a big problem in my eyes. So we should probably change our own laws in the UK. If we are going to commit to a war, you need to have bilateral agreement and then go in as a country, not as a party. 
That to me is probably the first legacy that we should be taking, not no intervention. It's we need both sides of the house to commit to something, and then when both sides actually commit, a bit like with uh, Syria right now, we did have bilateral agreement. If you ignore that idiot Corbyn, you had bilateral agreement. Most of the people on the Labour Party wanted to go in, just like most of the Tories did. We had both sides wanting to go in, and that's going to bode well for the future, because we both agree, and we're not going to then use cheap political rhetoric right, to win some votes and then screw over another country. Okay, so I think that's a really important point that we take forward. Not no intervention. Let's have bilateral agreement. Oh, no. Uh, my next point is to do with the last resort option, which I think is probably the most damning point in the entire Chilcot inquiry, if anyone's actually bothered to even read the 150-page summary. Uh, have you? No, 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 okay. Have you? I have, actually. Just a summary. I read it okay, yeah. uh, And to me, that's the most damning point of this thing. You cannot start dropping bombs and killing people if there are other avenues you can go down. It's, uh, that's murder. That's nothing short of murder. If it is indeed your last resort, and there's no other options to pursue, then by all means, if that's what's going to stop my first point being genocide, go down that option. But it has to be the last point. There cannot be any other avenues to go down. And that, to me, is the biggest issue of the Iraq conflict. We had plenty of other things we could do first, but no, we decided to drop some bombs. This isn't me saying I'm pro-dropping bombs or against it. But it has to be your last resort, and it has to be to stop a genocide. That, to me, is the legacy of the Chilcot Inquiry, not no intervention. So, if you think about the legacy, and that's what the crux of this debate is, that it's a legacy debate. This is not whether or not we should have gone into Iraq or not. This is what is the legacy of the Chilcot Inquiry. And I believe it's put in place a series of checks and balances for future conflicts. That's what the legacy of the Chilcot Inquiry is. It's not we go in or we don't go in, it's we go in when all of the following criteria have been met. Oh, right. Yeah, go on. Um, again, as long as we go in, what happened to the UN? Okay. Like, what, why is this just this? Um, actually, thanks. I'm actually coming on to that point now. So, the, my absolute last point is to do international consensus. Now, if England or the UK want to do something, or England really, uh, and <laughs> France then disagree with us, there's clearly an issue. When sort of your cousin, and America I think of it as our brother, and France I think of it as our cousin, right, on the international stage. When your cousin disagrees with you, you really have to take a deep, hard look at yourself, okay? So effectively, this is to do with the West, okay? And we need, as a West, to have general consensus on something. Okay? That's not the EU, because that's actually a useless organisation for us. Uh, they should be scrapped, abolished, and hopefully thrown in jail the people that created that organisation. But the reality is that when the West, as a whole, have international consensus to do something, generally I would say that is the right time to start intervening. At that point, okay, where a bit like one of a bit like the scenario where inside the EU, where all the countries have to agree to it, I think that is the time when you start intervening, not when you have fractions of 51% of the West want to intervene. Okay, the Chilcot Inquiry has given us a sense of zero checks and balances, and that is the real legacy of this, not non-intervention. I urge you to vote against the motion.
your cousin doesn't agree with you. Something's going wrong. <laughs> questions? Does anyone have any questions for the proposition this evening? No? Yeah. You can't. Did they have an argument? <laughs> anyone want to post that from the floor? We'll come back around. Any questions for the opposition this time around? Good lord, yes. Jeremy? Maybe just one. I really sympathise with your motivation for intervention. Um, but I want to touch on a point, and I disagree with Gary here in this respect, and Craig mentioned it last week. Not only has there not been any successful regime change by the West in the Middle East ever, I would struggle to find one example of successful intervention in terms of military intervention. Now, we're ignoring Kosovo for the purpose of this question, and even, I would say, the first Iraq war was, in some ways, a catastrophe, the legacy of it. Now, if you don't have a template for the policy that you're going to try to advocate, can you really, you need to do a really good job of justifying how it's going to work. And I just don't feel like that. I think there's been a case where intervention has worked in Bosnia. Uh, so there has been cases of intervention working and coming out for the greater good. I think that I've, I personally think that we, as the uh, opposition, highlighted a series of things that are the main issues when you try and intervene in the Middle East. The most important, which, like you spotted, is regime change. Okay, I think uh, Russia, believe it or not, I think have probably got the right idea right now, which is leave us leave Assad in power in Syria. Okay, I think you've got to do that, and you've got to let the country sort themselves out. And I know they're doing it for their own political reasons, it's not for the greater good of the country, I understand that. But I think if you're going to go into a country and you're going to start intervening, you pretty much have got to say, look, this is what we're wanting to stop, which is you killing your own people, right? And this is how we're going to do it unless you do X, Y, and Z. But we cannot then put in our own government in place, which is what we've done, it's what we've failed, and it's every single time it's the same error. I think the ch legacy of the Chilcot inquiry is basically saying that. That's me, is it? Not don't go in. I mean, like, again, we're just hearing the same thing. Where I present, like, millions and hundreds of thousands of lives are just a simple whiteboard whereby it didn't work this time or it didn't work that time. We'll go over there and we'll write out a new strategy so it doesn't happen again. Who do you think you are? Hundreds of thousands of people bankrupt to act as if, like, hundreds of thousands of people's lives don't matter and that the chill part of the world will make everything better because we'll do it better next time. Shame on you. Yeah, I think that yeah, you can't answer. No, 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 I think that perhaps the motion was. Okay, okay. <laughs> I think that perhaps the motion was slightly too strong. Like, it says, all right. Legacy of it should be that we should never ever go into the Middle East ever again for any reason ever. And I think that maybe it would have been a more balanced motion if it had been slightly. See, I'm not sure. Like, uh, maybe we shouldn't have done the Iraq War rather than we should never ever ever intervene in the Middle East ever again. Yeah. Proposition? Any thoughts? So, as a person who wrote the motion, <laughs> uh, I, I, I take your criticisms on board if, if we are to solely go by the motion as written. 
um, on Facebook. Um, because we did actually have to change it from the term card, which is something that uh, my honourable colleague here brought up earlier on. Um, can you remember the wording, Rob? The initial one was just, it basically excluded the West. It was this has to lead to choke up choir, should result in non interventionalism in the Middle East. Yes. Uh, the issue, though, I believe that um, my colleague, Mr. Finley, actually moderated the tone of that, that quite a bit. Um, if you would agree, Mr. Finley? Okay, uh, I'm going to look forward to this. Ah, 30 seconds. Uh, I think the biggest difficulty around this table is you, my man. Uh, how, on earth, on earth, how on earth can we sit down? Shh. How on earth can we just basically go, no, you can kill each other? Right? Basically, in Iraq, every year, over 100,000 people were dying. Over 100,000 people were dying at the hands of Saddam Hussein and his execution squad. Now, I'm sorry, we didn't. We sat by when that happened in Miranda, right? And everybody goes, it's the biggest mistake we've made. And we go into Iraq terribly with the worst plan I've ever seen, right? And basically, to try, in my opinion, to stop that from happening. Now, admittedly, there are probably other reasons why Bush and Blair decided to go in. But when you stand by and you have the capability to attempt to stop hundreds of thousands of people getting killed every year, that does not make me a cold-hearted person. That says to me, I know we have to do something, because that can't continue. We don't want to sit down and let another two million die or six million people die. You have to go into that country, and you have to attempt to do something with the best possible plan. And the Chilcot Inquiry has effectively said, here's a framework so you don't F up again. I don't feel that would terribly relevant to the question. Nor do I. Yes. Anyone else from the opposition wish to respond to the actual question? Can I respond to the question? No. What is that? I screwed up. I wrote a map. I wrote a map. Motion is too broad. Too narrow. Too strong. Too strong. Guys. Um, I think it came out rather well. Uh, yes, I do agree that it was rather, was rather strong. Um, but I think it offered an opportunity to defend intervention. Um, but also, I would say, yeah, if we want to have a debate about Iraq, then I'd be willing to have a debate. But for the confines of the debate, I think it was grand. Yeah, me too. Go give it a clap. Going back around again, did have any questions for the proposition? Want to be first? I don't want to let him. Can can someone? Yeah, we need to pass a question. No, thank you. No, everything. I can't do it anymore. Just kind of drawing again on the kind of terms of debate. A lot of what was used was there was a distinction made between um, humanitarian intervention and military intervention, but only, <coughs> only like, there, was no, there, was, there was no general consensus and did the proposition feel that there should have been, that it should have been referring to only military action or only humanitarian action, or do we need like a long run discussion on it? This may be better as an abstaining question, but... Proposition? Um, well, they're definitely interesting, think, a lot of things. And, no, maybe we didn't think it clear, but I think what we want to see is Cooperation between the UN and this, this is the UN, whether you get it right or not, 
in whether in our hearts us going international sports game, which it may have been. The reality is we broke international law, and and, and the idea that um, the extent that people view the West now in the Middle East for doing so is just so toxic. I mean, you saw, you saw in Somalia with Black Hawk down, people forget about that when a chopper was shot down in Germany, Somalian famine, and uh, the Western soldiers were castrated and, and dragged through the street for giving like relief. So like we have to really look, and I know where it's in changing. Uh, because that's the biggest problem on effects in the Middle East, but it's not. It's how people in the Middle East view Western people, and that's what would always be the biggest factor in the Middle East. Basis. One session. I, I don't know. Uh, I actually thought Finley uh, defined the motion by excluding <coughs> humanitarian intervention or humanitarian causes. Like, that's what I took part of your definition to be. You're Which, wrong, but go ahead. <laughs> I, I, I genuinely thought that you said that... Yeah, 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 yeah so I think we're not really about humanitarian intervention. Yeah, exactly. So we, were talk, we, we, as the proposition from that, took on. So this is going to be directly related to military intervention, which is, I think, all three of us took it on from a military perspective only, by accepting the fact that humanitarian action is one thing, and then military action is another thing, albeit that humanitarian on the whole will probably be delivered in certain places by the army. Question for the opposition. <coughs> there is was There was sort of an unexamined assumption, especially by the first two speakers of the opposition, when they spoke about going into countries in the Middle East to effect receiving change to install democracy. The unexamined assumption is that democracy is good. Mm. <laughs> That's a generally Western idea. I mean, <laughs> how many people in the Middle East actually support democracy? Good question. Um, I was just going to say that I think I specified it like in, uh, in my speech that when he took the point that um, I was against, I'm not saying that Trump was sad, he was sad, but Daesh. And um, I think we made that pretty much clear that it wasn't about religion, um, but actually we were against the Iraq war. Uh, well, I mean, just, just on. On your last question, I think I say it should be on your question, but just on your question, um, it's not going to be, so I thought I'd You asked how many people support democracy. That, 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 that I suppose, gets into the liar paradox. You know, because how many people support democracy? If a majority of people don't support democracy, then you have to respect what the majority wants. <coughs> but that's democracy. But anyway, you just tie yourself in knots when you try to relativize that much. Um, but on the point of what they want, uh, that, that does remind me of something that first of, I believe, talked rather gruesomely about the medieval um, punishments and, and, and sanctions that, that go on in, in, in these horrible places, such as, um, such as, um, sorry, no, 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 sorry, no, sorry, no, sorry, no, Everything's fine, sorry. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, so, so yes, all for all for, uh, all for stopping uh, medieval uh, forms of, of punishment in in, in, so in Libya and Iraq. Um, and definitely, just make sure we don't go into. Sorry. <laughs> this 
spoke a few times there, yeah, okay? <laughs> Any final salient points? Points on the motion, points on anything? Uh, Technically not actually on the motion, oh. but <laughs> I feel like um, every time we come here, we need to open the window and not forget to open the window. Because yeah. holy we'll God, we'll, 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 we'll be heading off in approximately five minutes against the lovely time. Not this time, but next time, and the time after. Junior. So. Uh, we touched upon that now. <laughs> anyone have any final, final points on the debate? Anything, anything you've heard tonight to anyone? Harry, sum us up. Well, it's very interesting that the, the Middle East was singled out in particular intervention. I mean, now regime change has been identified and we've talked about that. However, the Middle East, more so than pretty much any other part of the world, has a set of unique dynamics that make it unique to certain conditions. You know, it's, it's, it's strategically very important because it's in the centre of the world, which means a lot of trade routes go through it. But also, I think most importantly, and more so than pretty much anywhere else on the planet, although not unique, is that the regimes in the Middle East tend to get their tend to get their resources and revenue directly from natural resources, such as oil, gas, uh, water even is coming even more important. I think we'll get more important. Yeah, Kazakhstan's a big one, um, and Israel. Um, but the the, 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 natural impact, the natural impact of this is is that unlike other parts of the planet, which uh, rulers get more get their influence from productive citizens, in the Middle East, the dictators and monarchs can buy bystep that entirely and instead can rely entirely on renting out their state of foreign interests. <coughs> does, that, does that dynamic not dissuade the people of the Middle East from adopting some form of democracy? Is that not a natural deterrent from effective intervention? And I'm just wondering if, if anyone's said anything about that. We'll go to opposition first on that. <laughs> 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 I think if we're talking about the mid I, I actually forgot to mention this, but I don't think you can call the Middle East a homogeneous sort of set of people. I think that's an important thing to if I'm to directly address this gentleman's point, which I failed to do. And knew I was. Um, but I think that you, that's probably my first issue with, with them and my only issue is that they're not a homogeneous set of people. So yeah, you're right in terms of in certain places that does occur. I actually think Saudi Arabia is probably the most uh, like that out of country out of the sort of uh, model you've spoken about versus say like uh, Jordan, which is actually isn't okay. They actually need their people to be productive because of various other issues they've got in that country. Uh, but in terms of that model, stop meaning that intervening is an issue. I'd actually say that I'm a, the fact is that we, the West, are seen as cruci Christian crusaders. Uh, and the Middle Eastern countries are seen as Islamic following countries on the whole. And I think that's probably more of the issue than the actual corporate makeup of the country, rather than, so to me, no, I don't need a point to make, sorry. Proposition, final response to so, perhaps for the reason, the immense complexity of the Middle East, 
one of the most diverse set of dynamics between different places, different uh, cultures, different religions, and so on, makes it by its very nature, and that the fact that it is not one single homogenous group, make it prohibitive to interventionism. To because interventionism and the ways in which governments work tend to work in extremely broad brushes. And that is perhaps one of the strongest reasons of that. The driving reason really, uh, beyond you know everything else I actually said in my argument, that we should be avoiding interfering in such a matter because throughout our history um, of intervening in such nations, even up to the likes of it's not quite in Afghanistan as well, um, that we have failed because we struggle to understand any of these uh, dynamics. We struggle to understand who we should not offend and who we shouldn't offend and so on. And to intervene, we have shown uh, an incapacity to understand these things. I believe that is the real reason why we shouldn't intervene. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, thank you very much for everyone this evening for some time. What, what's up? I was going to make an understanding point as to why Iraq effectively broke down. Can, can, you make it, can you make it in 20 seconds? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not even a favour of myself, it's just a hard one to No, there was a guy, a civil servant for the US called Paul Bremer, and he was in charge of the transitional stage of the government in Iraq. And uh, the Ba'ath party, which was effectively the biggest party in Iraq, um, was in control and civil servants to army people, everyone signed up this party, which then Saddam Hussein was a part of because career-wise it actually got him promotion and stuff like that. And whenever Paul Bremer came in, he thought that these people were actually aligned as Saddam, whereas it was actually a career move as such to be part of the party. And he effectively cleared out 50,000 of the most intelligent people in Iraq, all army generals, doctors, teachers, everyone, cleared them all out. And that is effectively why the whole state just completely crumbled because people who weren't qualified to do the job were in the job. And that, that happened from like 2003 to 2009. Thank you very much all the speakers this evening. A big round of applause for everyone. We will now move to a vote. So first of all, we will move to uh, the opinion vote based on... Only point, actually. Are you happy enough? No. We'll now move to an opinion vote based on the motion. This house please, shut up legacy, must keep the West out of the Middle East. Uh, this is based on your opinions and all you hold whenever you first came in. Uh, so all those who are in favour of the motion, please raise your hand and say aye. Aye. One. Two. Two. One. <laughs> I don't know either. Uh, all those opposed to the motion, please raise your hand and say nay. Nay. So I believe on opinion, the house abstains. Is that right, Mr. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Twelve. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
always jolly good. And now we move to the passing vote based on speaker's performance uh, on the motion. That's after the joke about the must be the best at that, please. Uh, all those who thought Proctor spoke better this evening, please raise your hand and say aye. I thought they did a very good job. <laughs> <laughs> One. All those who believe the officers spoke better this evening, please raise your hand and say nay. Nay, nay. nay. <laughs> <laughs> nay, nay. Rarely And all those saying on the motion thought both sides spoke equally well or equally poorly, please write that in there. No. Hey, do you want voting records? Mr. Dunphy, please give us the final verdict. On the motion, this House believes the Chilcot legacy must keep the West out of the Middle East. The vote reads one vote for proposition, 16 votes for opposition. Thank you for everyone for coming on Thank you for our speakers. for Going for a few drinks and contact Lily about the Christmas dinner and the girls coming on.